to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast about pop culture and hot gas through the lens of your nosy neighbor. I'm your host, Millie Brooks, and we've got a doozy of an episode for you today, guys. We are talking all about funding, financing, finding money to support your fertility journey. Um... If you are playing along, we are in season three right now, and all the episodes this season are under the umbrella of infertility. Um, Why? Because that is something that me and my husband are struggling with currently. Um, So today we are going to talk to my good friend, Lauren Rossi, um, who is just now starting treatment um, about trying to find grants, trying to find accessibility, which states actually, you know, offer coverage for IVF treatment and other infertility treatments. Um, We're just going to dive into the world of money right now and fertility treatments. So stay tuned. If you are a fan of me, myself, and Millie, um, follow us on Instagram at me, myself, Millie. That's M-Y-M-Y-S. Oh, no, that's not how it is. Oh, my God, this is really going off the rails. I can't even remember my Instagram handle, let alone spell it out loud. Okay, so it's at me. M-Y-S-E-L-F, Millie, M-I-L-L-I-E. There's no and between myself and Millie. Follow us on Instagram for more podcast updates. And if you are a super fan of the show, please like, rate, subscribe to Me, Myself, and Millie on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. Alrighty, Lauren, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Millie. I'm really honored to be here. Well, before we dive into our chit chat, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and give a brief glimpse into your fertility journey? Sure. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Oakland and I am a high school teacher. I usually say that I'm a high school teacher by accident because I started my journey through education as an actor. Um, And I fell very accidentally into a school that was looking to start a theater program. And I thought, oh, I'll just take a job to have a steady paycheck. And eight years later, it is my whole world. Um, So it's it's been really incredible. And being a teacher in the 21st century, especially now while we're in uh, COVID, times uh, is it's a full-time gig in a way that it wasn't when we were growing up. So being a teacher is a huge part of who I am now. Um, I've been married to my husband for five years almost. We've been together for 10. We uh, broke the cardinal rule of actors. We we fell in love while we were in a show, which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> um, so I, I broke I broke the golden rule. And it worked out really well in my case, and I'm really grateful for that. 
Um, my husband is an artist and an actor and basically the greatest human alive. And I think a lot of people say that a lot of people say that their husband is the best husband, but I get to say that my husband, other people's husbands think that my husband is the best husband. <laughs> oh, well that's, that's diff- next level. Yes. So I, I think I, I really can like validate that. <laughs> I can back it up, <laughs> but yeah. Um, we started trying to get pregnant, uh, two years ago. It's the, this month is the two year anniversary of our trying to conceive journey. And, uh, it was about eight months in that we were diagnosed with uh, unexplained infertility after a series of tests uh, for both of us. And that's and yeah. who diagnosed you? Uh, my OBGYN. Your OBGYN? Yes. Okay. Got it. But they put you through a lot of blood work and then they put you through x-rays and it's it was a huge you know, step to get that diagnosis, which tells you everything and nothing at the same time, especially if you have what's diagnosed as unexplained infertility, which means that they have no idea what it is. And it could be in, you know, stress and it could be nothing at all, just unexplained. Um, Shortly after we got the diagnosis, I got a bill in the mail for all of the labs that I was put through and the x-rays and um, all the procedures. And the bill was massive, truly massive. Uh-huh. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and that- Are we talking in the thousands? We're talking in the four thousands. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it was paralyzing. Everything that we had, you know, really set aside- to help uh, like our little nest egg, our little baby nest egg was depleted almost instantly um, just through testing that wasn't covered by insurance. So that really paralyzed um, me emotionally. And it was a lot of fighting with insurance companies and a lot of um, phone calls, letters from my doctor, and things that, you know, I had no experience with things that, you know, learning things about insurance and law and the healthcare system in our country, which, you know, I was, had no familiarity with. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, about 16 months um, into our trying to conceive process, I got pregnant naturally, which was a shock to us because our Uh, My OB had said that that probably wasn't going to be a reality for us. So it was scary and exciting. And um, it was truly like a a miraculous moment, um, only to have that taken away about eight, nine weeks later when I had a miscarriage. And then this, like a sick joke, (laughs) the second round of bills came in and my the, uh, the bills for the miscarriage yes ma'am yeah it's it's a, like a weird loophole that they don't tell you about um where <gasps> they didn't cover a lot of the treatments for my ultrasound because it didn't turn into a full pregnancy and it wasn't carried to term that it wasn't it was considered ob care but wasn't gyn care and gyn and it's like a formality and a language thing that caused my insurance to not offer coverage for 
not only the, the ultrasounds that I had to identify that I w- had had the miscarriage, but the treatment subsequently, and then my miscarriage had a series of really serious comp- complications, um, which required blood tests every week, and th- none of those were covered either. So all evil. of this, That's evil. It's, That's just evil. It's sick and twisted, truly. So all of this really led to me digging into like my teacher side and going, okay, I teach equity and I teach social justice all day, every day. So this seems like a glaring equitable issue and a glaring access issue. So I started doing some research really like out of anger to how it was that this that me, a person who has health insurance and, you know, checked every box I was supposed to check growing up, walked in and walked out with, you know, $6,000 in uninsured procedures just to, to, you know, to walk away with no baby and a $6,000 bill, how we got there. So that's that's a I can't where believe we are today. I, I'm like my blood is boiling right now. Yeah, it's um it's been really hard to get to the point where because you definitely like feel that blood is boiling and I've I've felt that, but to get to a point of action, which is you know, mm-hmm. ironically where we are in our country right now, um, to go from the point of I'm angry about it to I'm gonna do something about it and I need to yeah. learn about it is was a shift that I had, it took me a while to get through because I was paralyzed by anger and just furious and didn't want to go out. And I didn't want to go to the doctor anymore. And, you know, I was looking at different health insurance plans and it was, and I was looking at my carrier and how this happened to the point where, where I am now, which is still, am I allowed to say pissed? Pissed. I'm still pissed. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, to get to a point where I want to share what I went through because it's so important that nobody else ends up where we did. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about your insurance sure. and like what types of costs, you know, came up along the way and what, which ones were talked about. Mm-hmm. So, Uh, I have pretty standard insurance through Blue Cross, um, and it's never really been, it wasn't like a, I had had issues with my insurance in the past. I always felt very taken care of. So uh, very naively, when we had been through the eight months of nothing, and I went to have a in-office appointment with my doctor, um, my OB, to talk about the fact that we hadn't gotten pregnant after eight months and I was worried. Um, it was a 20 minute in office meeting. No tests were done, just sat in a chair. And a week later I got a bill for $226 and I was shocked. And I immediately emailed her and I said, all I did was sit with you for 20 minutes and like, no offense to you. I don't think that that's $226. And we went back and forth and she said, well, you know, this is just that infertility treatment isn't covered. So 
you know. So infertility conversation isn't covered either? That is where I, that is where the semantics started. And I actually got them to talk down the bill for that office visit. Cause I said, you know, we talked about infertility, but you did not treat me. You did not diagnose me. It, no tests were run. So it was purely a, and I said, if we had had this over a phone call, would it have cost me $226? And she said, no. I said, if I had emailed you, would it have cost me $226? She said, no. So that one, that one I was able to talk down, but it took about two months to talk it down. Now that should have been a warning sign for me because she, as subsequent to that meeting, she had ordered blood tests and an x-ray done. And I should have taken the hint from that, that the rest of those things weren't going to be covered. So the blood work, which they order a series of labs for you. um, And it was about eight different tests and then an x-ray, an HSG. So really invasive procedure um, that involves x-rays and scans and all of that is is what they call diagnostic fertility testing. It is not infertility treatment. However, there is only one code that the doctors use for an HSG or for the blood tests. And that code is a series of numbers and the little word next to it is infertility. And because it says the word infertility and it's associated with that code, insurance won't cover it. Oh my gosh. Now, some people's employers, like I'm told tech companies and like more 21st century, um, like technology companies and that are run by, that tend to be run by younger generation will cover it. But I work for a school and um, I happen to work for a Catholic school. And I knew that I wasn't going to be covered for any treatment because that goes against doctrine. But I never imagined that a blood test that could have told me that something was horrendously wrong with me, because this is this is the real kicker, is that if the HSG x-ray had shown that I had ovarian cysts or that I had polyps or if there was some, if, you know, their fallopian tube was blocked or something serious that would require additional medical attention was wrong, then it, I would have had an argument to get it covered. But because it was simply diagnostic and it went with that code for infertility and nothing came back wrong, they didn't cover it. So after about a year, so this is this time last year, June of 2019, we had accumulated bills for $4,427. Oh my gosh, Lauren. Yeah. That is a (laughs) kick in the dick. And I'm just going to say it. That is a kick. Wow. And it's not to say that, you know, all insurance plans are this way. Um, And I think that that's the really important lesson is to then make sure that when you're going into this process, that you make sure that you know what you're doing um, and you really look at your plan. Uh, But in the case of ours, it was, you know, a shock to both of us. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, in your research, which states in the U.S. provide free access to fertility care? So only 17 states have fertility insurance coverage laws. 
um, seven of them are actually related to um, medically, what they call medically induced infertility. So that means that if you are going through chemotherapy, you have you are protected under the law that your insurance is required to cover egg retrieval or any sort of um, assisted reproductive technique that would preserve your fertility while you're going through um, treatment. And actually, California just passed just joined that list in October of last year. Mm. Um, they had been not on the list for a very long time. A little time. behind. Yes. And if you go to, um, a, there's a website called ncsl.org um, and you can dig in there for the insurance coverage uh, for infertility laws and it gives you a full list of what each state offers and really breaks it down. I'm actually very surprised that you said it was 17 mm-hmm. states because I was under the impression it was just two, oh. Illinois and New York. But I'm I'm glad to hear that and it more is different, states are it is different for each state. So some of it says that your that your insurance has to require this. Or and some have little caveats that say employers who are self-insured employers are exempt from this requirement. And some say something like if you are uh, if it is against a religious organization to offer coverage, then they're also exempt. So maybe that's where the two is that has universal universal um, coverage. Maybe that's what that number is. But mm. it change. I mean, ho- hopefully, it's changing every day because we need to get better about this. Because yeah. as a whole, the United States is. I mean, from every research I've done, I think I can unequivocally say we are the worst at covering any sort of fertility mm-hmm. uh, treatment or um, assistance. Yep, I would agree with that. I've talked to a couple of people in the UK mm-hmm. on the podcast, and they're, you know, they were very lucky to have their treatment covered yeah. by the um, NHS. So um, it's really, I think it is sort of, there is an injustice to it mm-hmm. because like even when COVID hit, I felt like there was, it was like, wow, nobody's telling other people to not get pregnant right now. Why is it that people who are infertile have to, have to pause that, you know? And so that was like the, that was the first time I actually really experienced it firsthand of like treatments being, canceled or paused or cycles being stopped because of, um, the pandemic. So it, but that's just like the tip of the iceberg. It, it goes, it goes so far, the injustice. Absolutely. And like you were saying, the Europe is doing a better job. Um, especially like countries like Denmark and we we're talking about Great Britain and Sweden. They're doing a really great job at this and really making it a priority. And it is something that our country doesn't prioritize. And you can see that by the fact that any of us who are going through this process know that every month is like valuable. Every month that you take away from us from saying that we can get fertility treatment is you know, I think of that, the analogy of, um, if you've ever seen, uh, my cousin Vinny, 
the movie with Marissa yes. Tomei is standing yes. out on the porch and she's stomping her feet and she's screaming, my biological clock is tick, tick, ticking. You, that's how it feels every month. And to take that and put that on pause is truly horrifying for those of us who are going through this process. And mm-hmm. the equity issue is mind blowing because it's not just about equity. It's about it's access and there, the access to assisted reproductive techniques in the United States is blocked in every corner. Even if you have health insurance, you're blocked from it. If you are religious or work for a religious organization, you're blocked from it. If you are white, you have more access to it than you do if you are a person of color. I really I read this really interesting statistic last week that we all know that one out of every eight women suffers, or I shouldn't say suffers, is is a warrior for infertility. Mm-hmm. Um, and 15% of white women between the ages of 25 to 45 seek out infertility treatment. And that's compared to the fact that only 8% of black women seek out treatment in that age range. It's almost half. So clearly there is an issue with feeling welcome even in the room that Mm -hmm. if you are a person of color, you feel like the gate is closed to you before you even try to open it. And that goes for so many things in our country, obviously. But it's really interesting to evaluate the fact that if you have money, you get a baby. And if you don't have money, you might be out of luck. When this seems like it's such a fundamental right for us as women and growing up in a religious institution, it was exactly what I was told I was supposed to do. Nobody told me that it wasn't going to be something that we could all do. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you on that. And it is, um, it is still a touchy subject with religious or organizations, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, well, and you kind of talked about this, um, on a global scale, which countries offer free access? So it's changing every day. And, um, last, I want to say it was last, within the last few months, the country of Hungary started free IVF treatment for any woman that wanted it. But the reason they did it is because the uh, population in Hungary, the numbers are going down. So they did it as an initiative to try and boost the country's population, which I found like both hilarious and awesome. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. But India is the most affordable place for IVF if you want to do it without insurance coverage. Um, Denmark offers it free and they have the highest success rate. Uh, But most European countries are the ones that are offering uh, free treatments, assisted reproductive techniques. And Canada's getting there as well. Um, I know in Ontario... It's different by each province. In Ontario, it covers one full round of IVS per female. And in Quebec and like Manitoba and those other, the few other provinces, there are tax credits available for people who are looking Mm. into fertility treatment. Wow. Um, Well, in your research, what types of grants 
are available to people who are struggling with infertility? So the first thing that blew me away is that there were grants for mm. <laughs> for fertility um, because that was the, we thought the door was closed after the first round of tests and that first um, four thousand five thousand dollar bill that we got we had we were ready to stop and we just thought that the door closed for us and then to the miscarriage that we had also ended up costing us around $2,000 in additional bills. So after that, we thought the door had been slammed in our face a second time after we had like peeked it open. So we started looking into grants and, and I think I fell into it really accidentally when I was in one of my anger tornadoes. Uh, anger, anger research tornado. Listen, anger <laughs> tornadoes can mobilize. Yeah. It's good. So there are only uh, about 10 to 15 different private grant options, and all of them are different. Some of them are through fertility clinics that offer grant opportunities, and others are uh, designated by state, but there are about 10 that are available to any woman in the United States. And there's a full list that I have compiled that I'm more than happy to share, but there isn't really like a comprehensive website that you can go to that gives you all the grants. Um, so I kind of had to do digging on my own and create my own little spreadsheet. Uh, but most of them are really uh, accessible. The requirements are simple. You just write your fertility story. Some give you a little additional prompts. Usually there is a, an application fee of about $50 to $60 that is considered a donation to that nonprofit. So it, it is tax deductible. And often they'll ask um, for financial information, like maybe your taxes from the last year or um, uh, an income, proof of income to help kind of show that you are uh, financially not able to fulfill the requirements of assisted reproductive process of the assisted reproductive process. And uh, they're, they vary in, in what they offer. So some of them are $10,000. Some of them are one huge round of IVF. One of them is three rounds of IUI because that's often what doctors, doctors recommend. Um, and then it really just varies depending on um, what the grant is and how big the organization is. There's one that I wanted to highlight that I fell in love with. And I like very accidentally found this woman who lives in Minnesota and she has struggled and went through many rounds of IVF to start her family. And she started a website called Farcical Fertility. And it is women sharing their funny IVF or their funny IUI or their funny fertility stories because we get so bogged down in the horror of this process that she wanted to really bring light to it. So she started a donation-based organization where she's been collecting money and accepting grant applications um, for people who have the funniest fertility story. And you can apply and she'll, you know, she chooses one every year, it looks like, and you can literally get money towards your fertility treatments for something horrifically funny that you endured. I love that. I think that's really nice. Like adding a little bit of light and levity to this dark mm -hmm. 
situation that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Um, and well, do you have any information on loan options for treatments? Yes. So you actually can get private loans as well to cover your treatments. Uh, and they're pretty relatively easy to qualify for. And there's an organization, if you go to resolve.org, it's the National Infertility Association, and it's a great resource. And they have uh, a little tab that you can click on that details all of the loans that you can apply for. They're starting to accumulate grant information on their website as well, but it's not a comprehensive list. Uh, But it's start there, start digging and start sleuthing from there. And it'll open more doors to different loans that are available to you uh, through private lenders. That's great. Yeah. Resolve is a great resource. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you, I mean, back to sort of your own personal journey, Lauren, did you ever consider doing a crowdfunding campaign or a different type of fundraiser for the costs involved in treatment? I didn't. And I think the reason why is because this struggle has been very private for us. We really suffered silently for the last two years. Um, Only a handful of our friends were really aware of what we were going through and still are. I think, well, they're all going to be aware after this podcast comes out. (laughs) (laughs) The cat's out of the bag now, Lauren. Sorry, guys. I didn't tell you what was going on. (laughs) Um, And I think there was just a lot of shame around it. And there is a lot of shame around it in our culture. We don't talk about it. And it is something that even I had a hard time talking to my parents about. And my mother had had miscarriages and my mother had me at 40. And it was so stigmatized that I couldn't even entertain the idea of putting it out all out there. And even though trying to conceive had become basically our full-time job, and it it consumes you psychologically, mentally, emotionally. We just don't discuss it. And I wasn't prepared. My doctors didn't prepare me. My parents didn't prepare me. Nothing could have prepared you for the emotional, mental, physical, and financial war that you're fighting. And mm-hmm. it was such a burden that we didn't have the language to get out of. And it's taken us a while. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I have the greatest husband ever, but it's so hard for him to carry me through this process and for me to carry him through this process that inviting other people into it, we didn't even know how to. We didn't have the language for it and we didn't know how to talk about it without falling apart. So a crowdfunding option, now it's it seems like so normal because we crowdfund for everything in our culture. But this mm-hmm. is the thing that we don't talk about. So how do we ask, how do we talk about it and then ask for help? Yeah, it is a dilemma. I, I, I totally, I hear you on that. And, I, and I'm just going to couple it with, I know a lot of people that love you, Lauren. And um, just, I, side note, I just got off the phone with Katie Rubin. <laughs> oh, my Katie. Who was... Yes. And, and she was like, 
I'm like, I got to talk to Lauren about doing a crowdfunding campaign because she is so loved in the community. She is walking sunshine on the sidewalk. And so many people would just would love to help. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm planting that seed and take it or leave it, do with it what you want. It's, it is so, and I hear it. I do hear it and I feel it. And I'm so grateful. And I think that, you know, I have one of my dearest friends um, who also works in the theater community and she lives in New York now. She is my, my warrior. And she constantly has to be the one in my ear to remind me to strut and remind me that I'm not alone in all of this. And neither is, you know, neither is my husband who is, who feels a different level of paralysis around this process because he feels so helpless and I'm the one going to the doctor's appointments and I'm the one doing all the drugs and the shots and all the stuff. And he's, you know, my personal cheerleader, but how, you know, how do we support each other? And sometimes it's as simple as just listening and as, as simple as Mm -hmm. being an ear and saying, you know, that sucks. I don't know. I can't, I can't maybe empathize the way that you need me to, but I certainly can listen and I can certainly sit with you and go, this really sucks and drink a lot of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything you wish you knew before you started all of this? (laughs) Um, You know, it's like that joke that everyone says, gosh, I, I wish I had learned these practical skills in high school, like how to file your taxes or change a tire. I wish that somebody had taught me about insurance, uh, what a deductible was, how broken our healthcare system is in our country, how to navigate this and even talk about health insurance. You know, when you get a new job, they just tell you to check a box. You don't think twice. You just, at least personally, as somebody who grew up with a wanting to be an actor, I just assumed I was going to be poor and uninsured for the rest of my life. That when I got a job that gave me insurance, it was like the holy grail. I truly remember calling my father on the phone and being like, I did it. I got health insurance. (laughs) And he was so proud of me that I didn't even, naively, I didn't think that it wouldn't cover blood tests, something so simple. And I didn't think it wouldn't cover things that my doctors ordered because your doctor is the person who's supposed to be looking out for your best interest with your health. And I assumed that if they ordered something for me, my insurance would cover it. So I think what I wish I knew is everything. And Mm -hmm. because I felt like I really knew nothing after this process. So if it's, Mm -hmm. if it's advice that I could give to anyone, it's be annoying, ask the questions Mm -hmm. from your health insurance. Because another thing that is, that I've really realized about myself through this process is how conditioned I am as a woman to be polite and to be accepting and quiet and kind. Mm -hmm. And when you're a warrior like this and you're fighting an actual war for the thing that you want more than anything in the world, there's no room for politeness. 
you have to ask the tough questions. You have to call your insurance every day and be annoying to make sure that the things are covered that they're asking you to be tested for. And it's, you know, asking your HR representative where you work and asking your coworkers who have gone, who have had kids, ask your coworkers what they experienced, what bills they had to, you know, carry with them and had they had to pay out of pocket for it's asking questions and not being afraid to ask them yeah you really have to be an advocate for yourself you have to like go to bat for yourself time and time again day after day yep. you know you can't like i don't know you just can't get small which is something that I tend to do in the face of like, I don't know what's happening. Um, you're a doctor. I guess you do know. So you just tell me. Holy cow. Yeah, kind of that, that is the biggest thing is the, you're the doctor, you're the authority in the room. So I guess I'll just defer to you. And, you know, you've spoken about this is finding the right fertility doctor. My, my OB referred me to a specialist or, and I didn't like them. But I felt mm-hmm. like, well, my doctor told me to go here and these people must be okay. I didn't think to take it matters into my own hands and yeah. do the research on my own and really, what's the word I'm looking for? Really make this my, take ownership is what I mean. Take ownership mm-hmm. of this process and stop sitting back and going, this is happening to me and it sucks and I'm just a, you know, I'm just that one in eight. I'm just another person. I'm just that one in five who has a miscarriage. I'm just all of these statistics. And to stop, to be able to get out from under that burden and out from under that stigma and really take control of this process has been super empowering for me. And it's what got me to the point to be able to talk about it with you today is that power that I'm taking back. I'm taking back the language and I'm taking back the stigma and inviting other people to do the same. Yeah. Amen to that sister. So true. (laughs) Yep. So true. Well, do you have any advice for people concerned about the financial burden of fertility treatments? I mean, first your concern is valid and it's real Mm -hmm. and you, you should be concerned Arm yourself with information. Um, it is essential. Get you know your healthcare packet from your HR rep. Dig into the website that your um, health insurance carrier offers and call them. If your doctor orders an HSG before you go in, call and say, "Hey, is this covered?" And if it's not covered, find out why, because chances mm-hmm. are it's going to be the beginning of this, this trend of what they are and they aren't going to cover. Don't be afraid to be annoying. Ask a lot of questions. Um, and you know, this seems so simple, but practicing self-care because once you pass the line, when you're no longer just, I I mean, I, I define it as a line who you are when you're just a person who's trying to get pregnant and you and your husband are trying to get pregnant or you and your partner are trying to get pregnant or in to where you go when you cross the line into this silent army of women who are struggling with fertility. And to me, that was a very invisible line that I crossed 
and I stopped talking because when this began, I was so excited and our friends knew we were trying to have a baby and it was this joyful thing to when I quietly crossed into this army of women who suffer with infertility and there was shame and there was pain and there was anger and it went from joy to darkness very quickly. So the self-care part of it was neglected. And if I could mm. do it over again, that's the part that I would have done first. I would have prioritized my self-care because I think we lost a lot of months because I was so depressed and I was... I couldn't go out and I couldn't talk about it. And we couldn't, we stopped talking about it. And if I had gotten the care that I needed, and if I had asked for help, we, we would have been healthier. So Mm. the main thing that I can offer is that, that prioritizing your self care before you prioritize is part of prioritizing this fertility journey. It's not extra. Yeah, yeah. It's not on top of or before or behind. It has to be woven into the process. Yep. I think, um, you know, I really admire certain people that I know within the infertility community that have just taken a break for a while. You know, they've just stepped back and they're like, I need some space from this. Mm-hmm. You know, I really admire that because it becomes like you're on a fertility treadmill. It's like, okay, I got to get here now. Now I got to get there. And then once I get there, I'll get this, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and you just be, you're a hamster on a hamster wheel. And it becomes your full-time gig. It's your full-time mm-hmm. job, what you're eating, your stress level, you know, bodily fluids that you never thought you needed to log into an app, <laughs> taking your temperature, yeah. you know, where peeing into cups and blood work, like all of this becomes exhausting and not fun anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not fun and it's not a celebration of you and your partner creating a life in whatever way you choose to do it. It's, it's just work and Work isn't always great. <laughs> and work right. is definitely not what this should be. And you can all and here's the other thing, you can always put so much effort into it and still not get the outcome that you desired. Amen. You know? Yeah. And, and how- that is really, really hard. And you want to make sure that you don't abandon yourself through the process. Yeah. You the, know? That is a really that's a statement that's been super ironic for me. As teaching high school every day, I, I listen to my kids be disappointed by so many things in life, whether it's not getting to the college that they wanted or not getting the part they wanted in the play or not getting a grade that they thought they deserved. And if I had a nickel for every time I said, you know, sometimes we can work our hardest in life and still not get what we think we deserve or feel that we deserve. And even when we work our hardest and we do deserve something, something else could be taking it away from us. I say that once, twice a week, but to Mm. say it to myself and to acknowledge that personally was a huge mountain to climb. 
and to accept it. Yeah. To accept that this might not just happen to us the way that it was always promised to me. It's going to take yep. some maneuvering, some creative solutions. Yes. <laughs> creative solutions that should be available to everyone. There's no reason that anything should stop you, whether you're a single woman or a gay couple who wants to start a family or surrogacy is your only option or adoption. This shouldn't be something that has an has a gatekeeper. It should be available right. to everyone. It is our fundamental right as human beings to and it's and it's what we're told we're supposed to do. <laughs> we're told we're supposed to yeah. procreate. And if it's if it's so ingrained in our culture that we're supposed to just go out and start families and this is what we do, it's part of, you know, it's a next step. You get married and then you have a baby. If it's that ingrained in our in our society, then why is there this huge access and equity issue? Yep. Yep. So we have to do better. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, I, you've really brought a lot of awareness to my own knowledge of the fertility game. Um, and I think that like, like you said, arm yourself with knowledge and that, that will help you when you feel so powerless on this journey, Absolutely. you know? Thank you for having me and for opening this door so that, you know, it's it's a cathartic experience for all of us who are listening and who are a part of it. And it, it's going to take a lot of us out there making noise about this to, to change the way we think about this as a society and the way that we talk about it openly. And I'm just grateful that I get to share my story and hopefully it gives a little bit of peace of mind to the next person who's about to begin this journey. Yeah, I know it will. I know it will. All right, Lauren. Thanks, Mel. We'll be in touch. <laughs> All right. Bye. bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bums, and see you next week. <laughs>